Hello everyone, this is Deborah Richardson and today I am putting the AP in Happy where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. This podcast will give a voice to accounts payable team members by talking about the growing reality of cyber attacks in their world and which vendor setup and vendor management techniques they can apply to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Visit the Vendor Process Training Center to enroll in your choice of 55 plus training sessions that will help you and your team avoid fraud, compliance fines, and bad vendor data. Or just sign up to get access to Vendor Process FAQs and to attend weekly drop-in live Q&A sessions. Visit training.deborahrrichardson.com today. The link will be in the show notes. Are there any differences between onboarding vendors that are companies versus onboarding vendors that are individuals? And this is going to be a two-parter, so stick around to hear next week's. Keep listening. Welcome to episode 209. Is there a difference when onboarding a vendor that is an individual versus a company? Not really, but yes. From time to time, I do get this question and it's reasonable because vendors can be anyone that you need to pay from the person that made those special one-of-a-kind gift baskets for that special retirement party to the company that provides your check stock, okay? And yes, I did use check stock because I know many of you still are still issuing checks. And I was actually reminded this week that the cost of check stock has increased uh, along with everything else. So anyway, what I'm going to do is to go through a normal new vendor setup for a US vendor with an ACH payment method. And yes, I do see the irony in paying the check stock vendor via ACH, but I'm going to go through a normal vendor setup and just note the differences, if any, and the buyer, i.e. your company, uh, is in the U.S. as well. So you are a U.S. company, the vendors are both U.S., So I will go through best practices of what you need to collect to set them up and what may be different from an individual versus a company. And just to set the expectation here, nothing is different in what you collect. Just to be clear, um, take out all of the ambiguity. Nothing is different in what you collect or validate for that matter. So if you are wondering that, no. It's the process that you may go through, though, in collecting and validating that information that can be different. So let's go ahead and get started. So the first thing is, since they are both U.S. vendors and you are a U.S. company, you will collect the IRS W-9 from both. So again, nothing different in what you collect 
but there can be a difference in the collection process. So what could be different? So first of all, the company probably already has the most recent version, October 2018, completed. They have their company name on line one and the DBA, if any, is on line two. They selected C Corporation as their tax classification. The EIN is entered and their address is standardized correctly. When you do the IRS TIDMASH to verify their uh, vendor legal name and tax ID combination matches IRS records, it matches. No issues. Cut to the individual. Now they need you to send them the IRS W-9. And when you do, make sure you send them the right version. Again, it's October 2018 as of the publication of this podcast. And then the vendor will immediately send it back because they think it'll help them get paid faster, which maybe it will, but they immediately send it back with the name that they put on their invoices. In this case, let's call it Jane's Gift Basket Design. They put that on line one and then their social security number, they add that. They did select individual sole proprietor, single member LLC as their tax class. However, their address spells out the word drive instead of DR. And when you do the IRS 10 match, it's not successful. So you send it back and four days later, because Jane doesn't know what she did wrong, won't read the directions, she has contacted the internal team member that asked her for the gift baskets in the first place. And she tells them that AP is giving her a hard time. Now, the internal team member has turned around and reached out to AP. They reached out to you to tell you that you don't need the IRS W-9 in the first place because the invoice is only $599.95. You try to explain to the internal that you need to verify the vendor is real and that the requirement is in their vendor policy. And how do you know that she won't provide more gift baskets going over that $600 threshold? But you finally go back and forth with the vendor directly because the internal team member was just causing too many problems. And you finally get the correct W-9 with her first name and last name on line one and her DBA, the name that she has on the invoices on line two. You redo the 10 match and it is successful. By the way, that's about two weeks later. So They both get a W-9. However, the individual will most likely have the first and last name on line one, whereas the company will have their company name on line two. And I say most likely, but if an individual uh, selects uh, the first tax class of individual sole proprietor, single member LLC, the IRS instructions are for them to put their first name and last name on line one. And hardly anyone ever reads that, but that is the IRS instruction. So their first name, last name, line one for an individual, whereas the company will have their company name uh, on line one. All right. So we've gotten through the W-9, but this is also a payment method 
uh, ACH. So they're going to be paid electronically. So then you need to collect the banking information on a company branded ACH form. That is my recommendation. And I talk about why in a really quick episode, uh, and it's episode 116. So uh, be sure to check that out if you're interested. But you collect banking on a company branded ACH form. Now here, the individual probably won't have any issues completing. However, when you validate the bank branch details, which you should always do, you find out that the routing number is no longer valid. And why is that routing number no longer valid? Because her bank merged with another bank last year and that created a totally new routing number. And while she was aware that that was going on, she never bothered to get new checks because her account number didn't change. And who writes checks anyway, right? But that check is what she used to get the routing number for your company branded ACH form that you asked for because it was a quick thing to grab from wherever she had it near her desk. But no biggie. You can update it because this is public information and you move on to the company. So let's look at the company's uh, company branded ACH. So the company, on the other hand, they will already have their banking on bank letterhead or their own letterhead that they sent you instead of filling out your company branded ACH form. So you politely go back and while accepting whatever the company gave you, like you can accept what they give you, but you also indicate that your form is still required and you'll just gladly attach the support to the form whenever that is received. The contact that you are dealing with at the company may push back, but ultimately gets the form completed. You do the validation of the routing number, but you find out that the routing number they gave you is for wires versus ACH, and you can change that too and move on because again, that is public information. So the company branded ACH form, not too bad for either the company or the individual. And now you're going to move on to your next step that I think is required for both when you're creating a, when you're setting up a new vendor. And that is you're going to check them against at least the OFAC set of consolidated watch lists. Now, there may be other watch lists that are applicable for your company, but at the very least, uh, you need to check against OFAC because U.S. entities and individuals are prohibited from doing business with any vendors that are on this list. And so you do need to at least uh, check this one. So you go to the U.S. Treasury OFAC site, you key in the legal name for the individual, you key in the legal name for the company, and you find there are no issues. And so you move on. Now, next, you want to validate and standardize their addresses to make sure that whatever you mail them, right, and 1099 season is fast approaching as of the publication of this podcast, you want to make sure that whatever you mail them will not come back to you. So you want to enter in 
valid and standardized addresses. And standardizing your addresses uh, is also good for eliminating duplicates because if everyone is putting in the addresses based on the proper USPS standardization, um, and that's the United States Postal Service, then you can, it's easy to find duplicates. So let's start with the company. You run the company address and you grab that from the W-9 form. And if they have a different remit address that is on the company branded ACH form, then you'll run that too. But you run the company address on the USPS lookup tool or whatever other tool you have that'll do the same thing for US addresses. Uh, it's valid. And even the plus four on the zip code was on the W-9 and it matched as well. All right, but now we go over to the individual where the address was valid, but now you have to make sure that you key in the address correctly uh, versus what was given on the W-9 uh, and or the company branded ACH form. So you make sure you abbreviate the drive, which is spelled out D-R-I-V-E on the forms to D-R, and you also add the plus four on the zip code because that you did not receive. All right, so those are the basics. The IRS W-9, if it's going to be an electronic ACH payment method, then you also need to collect a company branded ACH form. You also need to at least check the OFAC watch list. And then you need to standardize the address. Now, your company may go further and may ask for things like diversity information, may ask for industry codings like the next codes. You may even collect insurance certificates. But as far as basic U.S. vendor ads, that's it. No difference between what you collect just the possible scenarios that result from trying to collect it, uh, those documents and do the validations is what's going to be different. Uh, also, though, if there is something that I truly left out that you require that is different for individuals versus companies when you're setting them up as a vendor, uh, definitely let me know that. Email me. Uh, I do have an email address in the show notes, or you can add it as comments wherever you are listening. All right. So that ends it for this week, but this is a two-parter. So next episode, next week, I am going to do the same thing, but I am going to use non-U.S. vendors. So you're still going to be a U.S. buyer, but the vendors are going to be non-U.S. vendors, company versus individual. And I have to tell you, AP won't look as put together uh, with the non-U.S. So just saying. All right. So thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 209th episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast, where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy. Stay happy.